Welcome to the Passion Harvest podcast audio series. Thank you so much for listening today. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. If you would like to watch this episode, please head over to our Passion Harvest channel on YouTube. We love taking you on a journey to discover your passions. Thanks for listening. Hello, passionate listeners and watchers. Welcome to Passion Harvest. Thank you so much for joining us wherever you are in the world. I'm Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. So excited about my guest today or tonight, wherever you are, Bernardo Castrop. And Bernardo Castrop's work has been leading the modern renaissance of metaphysical idealism, the notion that reality is essentially mental. Bernardo has a PhD in philosophy, ontology philosophy of the mind and another PhD in computer engineering, reconfiguring, reconfigurable computing, artificial intelligence. Bernardo has worked as a scientist for the European Organization for Nuclear Research, CERN, and the Phillips Research Laboratories, where the Casimir effect of quantum field theory was discovered. This is going to be an exciting episode, formulated in detail in many academic papers and books. His ideas have been featured on Scientific American, the Institute of Art and Ideas, the blog of the American Philosophical Association, and Big Think, among others. Bernardo's most recent book is The Idea of the World, a multidisciplinary argument for the mental nature of reality. This is his story, and this is his passion. Bernardo, welcome to Passion Harvest. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. I know you've got a busy schedule, so I really appreciate you being here. Um, I, I'd love to start by what, what is consciousness? In simple terms, not such scientific terms. <laughs> it's the kind of thing we all know what it is, right? The difficulty is, is in putting words to it. Consciousness is that which underlies every thought, every feeling, every emotion, every fantasy, uh, in a sense, it's all we know, because whatever is not in consciousness and has never been in consciousness might as well not exist. It's the only carrier of reality that we have and, and, and can possibly have. So if I were to do it, to define it technically, <laughs> I could yeah. say something else. But it's basically that thing that underlies all experiences. And so... <laughs> I'm sitting here talking to you now or across the screen. Is this, is this real? I mean, what is real, but is this reality or is this just my perception of reality? It depends on how you conceptually define reality and perception. Is it real as an experience? Of course it is. You are experiencing it. It's real as a content of consciousness. Um, but if we implicitly define reality as something that is fundamentally outside consciousness, some kind of abstraction of thought that we imagine gives rise to the contents of experience through perception, if that's our definition of reality, then the answer is, well, we don't, you, you don't know, I don't know, because mm -hmm. it depends on whether that abstraction is true. Personally, I think that abstraction is not true. I think all reality unfolds in consciousness, in mind, although not in your mind alone, not in my mind alone, not in the mind of a living being alone, but in some kind of mind at large uh, within which we are immersed. So uh, we're, all, we're all intricately connected. 
it's almost like I think you've mentioned about multiple personalities. Our thoughts are almost multiple personalities of the one God creator, whatever you want to call it. I'm not sure what you use the terminology for the one. Look, even under a materialist metaphysics, which holds that uh, consciousness or mind is some kind of side effect of material arrangements in the brain, even under that restrictive and, in my view, ultimately wrong metaphysics, we are all connected in the sense that we are all made of the same matter that uh, makes up the planets, the moon, the stars, the galaxies, and galaxy clusters and everything. Um, under idealism, we are also all connected, but in a more intimate way, because you see, even, even though many of us believe that we are matter, and that mind is some kind of a, a secretion from our brain, just like urine is a secretion from the kidneys, um, even those who hold to, to, that view, to that view, they know that uh, they are much more intimate with their own minds, in a strong sense, they are their minds, than with their bodies. That's why we say we have a body, as opposed to we are a body. So under idealism, our minds are not really fundamentally separate. Uh, we are just dissociated, like a person with multiple personality disorder. Uh, we are these dissociated alters uh, of a universal mind, not bound in space. And, and from that perspective, we are much more intimately connected because we are connected at the level of the contents of mind, at the level of our emotions, of our uh, thoughts, of our fantasies, wishes, desires, and fears. Uh, those are all ultimately unfolding according to analytic idealism under the one universal mind. And we are just temporarily dissociated aspects of it. Very big things to think about. <laughs> um, so I've got two questions, <clears throat> obviously related. Uh, am I, in your opinion, are my, my, my thoughts created by my mind? And if you don't mind when you talk when when you're talking about mind, can you define what you mean by mind? The mind and the brain or not necessarily? I'm, I'm trying to stick as much as I can oh, to okay. the colloquial understanding people have of the words mind and consciousness. Yes. Uh, and I'm colloquially assuming they are they mean the same. Technically, it's not the same. I could go into lengthy definitions. Um, but mind is your inner life, is what it what it feels like to be you, that, that's your mind. Um, when you go unconscious, if, if that ever happens, I would maintain that you only lose the memory of consciousness, you're never really unconscious. But sometimes we think we go unconscious, like we had a dreamless night in which we slept and we were unconscious. If that were the, the case, then you would have had no mind and no consciousness during those hours of sleep or when you under, undergo general anesthesia. So mind or consciousness is that which is there right now and that which is supposedly not there when you undergo general anesthesia. So I, I can't go more colloquially than, colloquial than this. So um, can, can you then go back and repeat the question you are uh, you asked the, the second the second question or uh defining the mind but are my thoughts my own oh, yeah. that was the other question yeah again that goes back to how you define you uh, yes who is the i right is the i the narrative of self that person who has a name was born in a certain date has had such uh, life experiences and has a personal history um i think 
not many of our thoughts and emotions are our own in that sense. I think uh, our mind um, has many layers, many levels, only the most superficial of which are individual and personal. They really are correlated to you as a limited human being, a little personal self that is born and, and dies and has a certain life history. I think most of what arises and comes into the, the world through us as experiences are of a more or less impersonal nature. These are forces of nature that happen to express themselves uh, through us. Certainly my own, many of my own thoughts and emotions, absolutely the best ones of them um, are not really mine. They, they, they are not really Bernardo Castro's. Um, they are movements uh, of nature that happen to unfold in the location my body occupies, in the volume of space my body occupies. Um, I think um, the most important things about us are not personal. And, and, and that's why it's to some extent tragic when we get too engrossed in our own little personal dramas because um, we clog <laughs> the channel and then nature really can't manifest through us. Uh, do you mind, does, I mean, uh, that takes me to sovereignty, our own individual sovereignty, but do you mind talking about just to define when the thoughts aren't your own, just the forces of nature, what does that mean? What do you do mean you, by that? Do you choose when a storm comes about? You don't, right? You look at your phone and you try to predict, but the storm comes about on its own. It's a force of nature. You, you have no sovereignty over the storm. It happens. And then I would ask you, and I would ask you to think about it uh, with sincerity. Do you choose your next thought? I don't. I'm thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're having an interplay of a conversation here and thoughts come into my mind of what's the next question. And I'm trying to... Um, understand all the big questions you're asking and um, other thoughts I'm thinking what's going to be my next question are not really my own okay then we, we can make it easier by thinking about a different type of thoughts um, bad thoughts which you know goodness knows we all have mm -hmm. all the time thoughts of an obsessive compulsive nature thoughts of um, anxiety thoughts worries uh, compulsions addictions uh, this kind of thoughts um, or emotions associated with these thoughts, the emotion of fear, the emotion of um, meaninglessness, the emotion of uh, dread, of, uh, of a boredom. Do we choose to have them? We can't possibly do that. If we, if we had control over our next thoughts and our next emotions, nobody would be suffering. We would have physical pain, but nobody would be suffering. Yet we are all suffering. So do we really have sovereignty over what we see and regard as our own minds? I would say we don't because even, even the individual self is, is, is just a little narrative. It, uh, nature recognizes no such boundaries. Nature is what it is and it encompasses everything. It's uh, we as aspects of nature that conjured up this story that uh, oh, we are observers and we sort of stand out of nature. Uh, but yeah, it comes back to bite us in unpleasant places <laughs> and nature proves its own power and sovereignty over us. Talking about the suffering, 
I feel with practice, we're able to filter the thoughts somewhat that come into our minds. Some people suffer much greater than others. Some, some people consciously choose to filter more positive thoughts. How does that occur? That some people suffer more than others is, is, is an obvious reality. I think there is no, no denying so, that. I mean the internal suffering, not the external yeah, suffering. Yeah, that, that, I mean that too. Some okay. people are clearly more prone uh, to suffering uh, than others. Um, can you repress the thoughts that you didn't choose to have? Can you repress the emotions you didn't choose to have? Absolutely. Um, the... the, the um, the, the, the practice room of uh, psychologists and therapists the world over are filled to the brim with repressed thoughts and emotions, the things that we don't want to recognize in ourselves, our own shadow, our own traumas, our own weaknesses. Uh, can we repress them? Of course, we are doing this all the time. The question is, can we choose to have them? Because if you can choose to have them, you don't need to work against them. They wouldn't happen to begin with. The fact that we needed to do work to manage them in some way, either to transmute them, like the alchemist that transmutes crap into gold, mm -hmm. or to repress them and put them in their respective little drawers where they stay well behaved so we can have a functional day at work. Um, all these things, if anything, they attest to the fact that we really don't choose <laughs> most of our thoughts uh, and emotions. Uh, uh, and that, that's why we need to deliberately, through practice, through meditation, through mental exercises of a number of different sorts, that's why we need to manage them. And then can you choose to manage them? Absolutely, of course, yes. Excellent word, the management of, management of thoughts. Yes, very interesting. Um, with the management of thoughts, oh, this just takes me, I just, I just had a thought. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you, we interact and you, you were talking about everything's connected and the thoughts are not our own. Why are some people, and this goes, probably goes back to management again, why, why are some people more positive and some people more negative? Or we have a feeling that we don't like this person or we like this person. What, what is that? Yeah, nature is an incredibly complex system. And uh, what we think of as ourselves are tiny little parts of it. I don't think we are even biologically equipped to, to, to have a handle on this, to, to explain why certain things are and other things are not. Because that would require taking the kind of helicopter view uh, that we can't take immersed as we are in, in the flow of nature. I mean, we are animals. Uh, we were up in trees a couple of million years ago, which is the blink of an eye in the history of this planet, the history of life on this planet, which is, which is 3.5 billion years old. Two million years ago is nothing, nothing. And we are up in the trees. So can we make sense of why certain people are the way they are, do what they do? Can we explain Hitler? Uh, I don't think we can, but um, I think the, the healthy attitude is one of um, humility and um, an aware ignorance. And by that, I mean being deliberately aware of what we don't know and therefore not rushing to judgment. Uh, judgments of the kind, um, um, my life is meaningless and I am worthless. Because... Who the hell are you to know that? Um, um, the, the moment you displace air simply by existing in the world, 
you started off a causal chain in nature, the reach of which you cannot begin to imagine. You do not know what has changed because of the fact that somebody one day looked at you. So I think that the, the right attitude is this of aware ignorance and, and humility. Um, Hitler's are born in this world. And, and I'm using his name because he happened to be a more or less recent one. There are many, many of which are less visible uh, and less famous. And there are Gandhis and Buddhas and Jesuses. Uh, they, they also happen. All of this clearly seems to be part of the intrinsic potential of mind. And by that, I mean mind at large, the mind that underlies nature, the consciousness that underlies nature, and out of which, and, and, and by, by, by virtue of which, all of these things happen. I mean, evil, absolute, no, absolute evil and absolute good are part uh, of the potentials of whatever it is that, that's going on. And so are we. And I think, for me, that's my own uh, personal attitude, uh, an attitude with that little, I mean, I, I will fight a good fight because I think that's part of our role in the world is to fight for the things we believe in. But um, in my heart of hearts, um, increasingly as I get older, my attitude is one of less and less and less judgment. As I get older, judgment becomes more and more preposterous to me uh, and less and less uh, natural. So, yeah, that, that's how I face uh, the question you, you, you asked. I don't have an answer for it, so I face mm -hmm. it with aware ignorance. Very humble response. Is it your belief with the management of our thoughts, we're able to manipulate or create our reality? Reality has many layers, right? You could say there is a foundational layer of reality, which is completely impersonal and out of which we arise as people. We can't change that foundational layer because we are ourselves a product of it. Um, however, in this day and age, our lives are much more cultural and psychological than they are raw nature. In other words, uh, the reality we actually live is a reality of our inner narratives. What we tell ourselves is going on. What we tell ourselves we are. Are we good? Are we bad? Is our life meaningful or not? Is the world evil? Is the world good? Is there a reason for hope or not? All these questions and the associated answers that we produce instinctively, even if we are not aware of it, um, these are the realities we actually live because they, they modulate uh, our experience of life uh, in this world. In other words, we don't really live the raw, impersonal or transpersonal reality out of which we arise. We live a reality that to a large extent is made up one by ourselves, two by the environment immediately around us and the, the people who occupy this, uh, and, and three by culture, the culture we inherit. We inherit a whole set of answers to the big questions, like what is the nature of reality? Well, it's material, it's atoms and force fields. Uh, what's the meaning of life? None, it's all a play of randomness and mechanical forces. Yeah, these answers that we inherit, that sort of are forced into us by osmosis, osmosis from the environment, they set the tune for how we experience life. So understanding this, can we change the life we actually experience? 
Absolutely, absolutely we can. You can do major feats of alchemy um, as far as the life you actually live um, is concerned. And none of that would, would mean that you have the magical power to change the foundational transpersonal layer of reality from which you, you yourself arise. Very interesting. And what do you think happens when we, when our physical body dies? I think um, what we call life um, is the, the image, the appearance of a dissociative process in a transpersonal mind, a transpersonal consciousness. You may want to call it universal consciousness, or, or, which is a good descriptive name. And you can call it, um, some prefer to call it God, some prefer to call it mind at large, like uh, Aldous Huxley. I don't care much about the name you give to it. My, my, my starting proposition is that uh, the foundational layer of reality is mental. And matter is just what certain mental processes look like from a given perspective. And in, in this regard, I think life is just what dissociative processes in a universal mind look like when observed from the outside. Bodies are the image of a mental process. They are not the producers of your mind. Uh, bodies are what our minds, dissociated aspects of our minds look like when observed from across that dissociative boundary. In other words, when observed from the outside, or even when you turn down and look at your own body, you are still looking at it from the outside. Because it appears eyes... that way. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so for me, a, bio, a living biological body is the image of a dissociative process. That's what life is. Life is what dissociative processes in a mind at large look like while they are going on. And from that perspective, death is then what the end of the dissociative process looks like. It's the reintegration of that uh, temporarily dissociated complex of mental contents. Uh, um, uh, uh, it's, it's the end of that dissociation that releases those mental contents into a broader transpersonal uh, mental content, mental context. So I think uh, your core subjectivity, that which you most intimately identify as the, the I, not your narrative of personal self, not the person who was born and has his opinions mm -hmm. and so on. No, the, the witness, the witness behind that narrative of self, the, the thing that thinks up that narrative of self, the thing that has the memories of a personal history, that thing, that formless witness, that raw subjectivity will not end because it's the only thing going on. It has nowhere else to go. It's, it, it's what's happening. Um, where is it going to go? Um, I think so when you die, your core subjectivity goes nowhere. It's, it will still be there, but its experiences will change because right now you identify with a dissociated aspect of that subjectivity. Um, and when you die, you realize, oh, that dissociated aspect was just a sort of a mental process going on and it comes to an end, just like a thought comes to an end. Um, I would uh, compare that to waking up from a dream. Um, while you're dreaming, you are dissociated. You think you are a dream avatar and uh, you don't identify yourself with the parts of your mind that are conjuring up the rest of the dream. 
you know, the other people in the dream, the houses, the trees, the cars, the streets. Uh, it is your mind conjuring that stuff up, but you are dissociated from that part of your mind that's doing those other things. And you identify only with the little dissociated aspect of your dreaming mind, which is your altar uh, or your avatar in the dream. Mm -hmm. uh, when you wake up, you don't mourn the death of your dream avatar, but your dream avatar is dead. It's toast. It's over. The dissociation comes to an end and you realize, oh, it was me all along doing the, doing the whole thing. I just forgot about it while I was dissociated. Um, in the same way, I think um, when we die, you realize, no, you were never Louisa uh, and I was never Bernardo. These are names we give to dissociated aspects uh, while you know, this big transpersonal dream is going on. Um, and then we realize, oh, that's not what was going on, actually. Oh, great relief, <laughs> probably. And we get so involved in the Louisa, or maybe you don't, the Bernardo, but I, you, we get so involved in the self of the personality that I take on as Louisa and what we see around us. So maybe we should disassociate a little bit more and realize it is only a dream very difficult to do that in our culture yeah we we live in a culture that will reward us handsomely for for connecting with that narrative of self and and uh, punish us severely if we don't so it's a, it's an art to live inserted in this culture and still maintain an awareness that um, you know you are just part of the entire world i remember um, and it's good that I still remember this because it gives me some solid ground that I can always refer to in my own mind. I remember when I was like nine years old, for a period of six months, uh, I uh, um, regularly had that thought that, oh my God, I am me. I'm not the world. I'm not the other people. I'm not the trees. I'm not, you know, the sky, the sun. And for me, that was a shocking realization to go, I am me and I have never been those other things or so I thought and I remember this physical feeling of a cold shiver just going down my spine um, and that happened for six months this amazement and this metacognitive realization that I am me and I'm not the rest um, and after six months of course I'm me and, and that's that's the story of us. We take it for granted at some point, but that's not our natural way of feeling our own identity. This is not natural. It's a cultural inheritance that is uh, as good as forced upon us and from which it's very hard to escape. From the day you are born, you're already given a name um, and, and the whole system rewards you for... for um, enforcing your personal identity, being assertive about your personal identity and associating the ideas of merit and demerit with your personal self, uh, as opposed to being integrated with the natural flow of events, and which is mm. actually the only thing that has been going on for 13.8 billion years. Um, but yeah, yeah, I still remember that. So I know how strange our condition right now actually is. Uh, but very few people remember how strange it is. We take it all for granted as if it was obvious. It's not obvious at all. It's, a, it's an amazing trick of cultural magic. Very interesting. And I just want to ask your thoughts. What are your thoughts on reincarnation? Do we have multiple lives in this physical form? 
reincarnation seems to presuppose that uh, some level of personal agency survives our death and which then can reincarnate. I am not sure that our personal agency survives. I think your consciousness survives, that you know, storyless witness, the thing that feels it all and believes it all, right or wrong. Um, but uh, me as an agent, Bernardo Castro, as an agent separate from other agents and nature at large, will that separate agency in some way survive? Well, that would require that um, the dissociation is hierarchical and that there are parts of this dissociation that have no physical correlate. In other words, that project no image because when a person dies, there is nothing left of that image as far as we are concerned, right? Nothing, no, no image of that agency seems to remain uh, in the world. So I would think that the most natural conclusion is that um, your personal agency dissolves uh, when you die. Not you, not the real you. The real you was never Luisa, was never Bernardo. Um, but this dissociated agency probably dissolves. Now, can we categorically affirm that? No, of course not. For all I know, we simply haven't evolved the cognitive apparatus or the sense organs to perceive as an image everything there is to be perceived about a dissociated up aspect of universal consciousness. And for all I know, although the body dies, maybe there is some subterranean process which has no physical correlate that goes on. It's like you can compare that as Carl Jung did to um, a flower, a flowering plant dying in the winter and you think, well, the flower, the plant is gone. But no, there is a root system underground that's still there. Next spring, it uh, sprouts again, another visible part. So maybe our bodies are just like those flowers, the visible parts of something that has individual agency uh, and which re remains hidden because we just didn't have any evolutionary advantage for perce perceiving those layers or those aspects of nature it, because they have no... Um, uh, import uh, for our ability to survive. They are, they, it doesn't matter. So if it doesn't matter, we didn't evolve to perceive them and we may not, may not even have evolved the ability to conceive of them in such a way that we could produce instruments to detect it. For all I know, that could be the case. Either way, I don't think it's very important because um, a lot of the evidence around reincarnation has to do with... Um, I'm trying to create, create meaning to Louisa again. I just realized that. Sorry <laughs> to interrupt, but I thought, oh my God, I'm trying to create meaning to Louisa to be reincarnated. Otherwise... We, are, <laughs> we try to do that all the time, but you know, the key is to realize that the meaning is in nature at large and you are it. So there is no need to search for meaning. You are swimming in meaning. It's like the fish asking, is there really water? What is this thing we call water? That's our, that's our condition when we ask about what's the meaning of Bernardo Castro or, or Luisa. Um, you know, bubbles in water and the meaning is, is, is everywhere. That takes me to my other very meaningful question. <laughs> but now I'm thinking, well, are, that, are my thoughts my own? Anyway, why? Why? Do we come into this physical form? Again, it's another meaning question, but I'm interested in your opinion. I will answer that. I have an opinion about that. I think there is a why, there is a meaning, but I want to preface my answer by, by saying um, nothing in nature enforces the need there to be an answer to this question. There may be no why. It, it, it may be that nature simply does what it does, and that's all there is to it. 
know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So when we look for something else, we have to stay alert for the fact that it's not a given that that something else is really there. Um, nature is not necessarily a, a premeditated system with a plan. It may be purely instinctive. It may be doing what it's doing because it, it, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. And that's all there is to it. Now, having said all that, I think uh, if nature is pushing towards anything and we have to take life on this planet as the, the, the example, because that's all we know, that's all we have. Um, there may be life in other planets, but this is the one we know. So based on this alone, I would say that three and a half billion years of evolution seem to be pushing towards what we call conscious metacognition. In other words, self-awareness, the ability not only to experience things, but to know that you experience things. That's what raises our heads uh, above the flow of instinct. Instinct is conscious. Animals experience things, but they never ask the questions, what's going on? Who am I? Why is this happening? These are questions that arise when you start self-reflecting. In other words, beyond raw experience, you start investigating the experiences themselves. Why do I have this experience? Why do I suffer? What is it about me that makes me suffer? Why am I alive in this world? Why am I experiencing this world? What would be different if I were not around? What would be different if life didn't exist? These are all metacognitive questions, questions of self-reflection. And it seems that three and a half billion years of evolution have pushed towards it at great cost, at unfathomable price. Let's look at the price. Um, human infants are born with gigantic heads because we seem to require a very large neocortex to have self-reflection. And before modern medicine, that killed a lot of women over the years because we have heads that simply don't pass very nicely through the birth canal. Now, this is a small price. Look at the big price we are paying now. Uh, we may be ending this planet. What a huge price nature is paying. Uh, there is a species around right now that from one day to the other can blow up the planet can extinguish the experiment of life on this planet. Enormous price. It's like going all in in a poker game with only a pair of threes and hoping that you're still going to win. Uh, another huge price. It is self-reflection that makes us suffer. If you don't have self-reflection, if you don't have that narrative of self, because you see, you need self-reflection to identify yourself as an individual experiencer. If you don't self-reflect, you don't have pain. You don't have hunger. You are the pain. You are the hunger. You understand what I mean? There I do. Only... I, it reminds me of, you know, puppies or animals. They're so happy all the time. Exactly. In very that, simple that does, terms. That doesn't mean that they don't have physical pain. Physical pain is, is there, but suffering is more than pain. Suffering is when you amplify the pain through a story of through a narrative in your own mind mm -hmm. about uh, why that pain is happening that it will never go away that it's getting worse that you didn't deserve it or you know these are the narratives we create and they they are responsible for the bulk of our life of our experiences so self-reflection has given us mastery over the planet and equipped us to do philosophy to investigate nature and try to figure out you know what is this all about uh, at the enormous cost of unfathomable suffering. So nature seems to be pushing towards it despite all the suffering. So to finally answer your question, I think the meaning of it all 
is the metacognitive recognition of what the universe is, what it's doing, which then equips us to pass moral, well, I don't want to use the word moral, to pass a form of value judgment on it. It's the one thing that allows nature to contemplate itself and say, is this good? Is this what I want? Or is this an aspect of me that I have to work on? Is it good that the pride of lions brings down an elephant and consumes the elephant for six hours with the elephant still awake before the elephant passes out after his hind legs are all consumed six hours on? This is nature. Um, in your backyard, ants are cutting up earthworms alive for hours, right in your backyard. It's a bloodbath. Um, we may be the first eyes of nature that finally are able to, to turn back and look upon itself, take, take notice of what's happening, and then tell ourselves, okay, what is it that's going on? What am I? What is my role in this? Am I the whole of nature? If so, what am I doing? Where, where am I going? And uh, it seems that this kind of self-reflective recognition seems to be the great value of life. And so the bad news is that we pay a huge price for it. The good news is that it invests everything with tremendous meaning, especially the worst possible suffering. Because it's only when you suffer that you stop and think. Otherwise, if we were all living Epicurean lives of delight, nobody would be stopping to think about the big questions. So we have suffering to, to thank for, for meaning. Um, and everyone's life has meaning. Even that infant that was born with an incurable disease and died half an hour later, what impact that infant has had in the lives of its parents and the doctors and nurses who took care of it, the people who hear the stories. I mean, everything, every sneeze you make has, is imbued with the cosmic meaning that we are just not equipped to take full account of. I'm thinking about what you said. It's very deep and meaningful. <laughs> I just wanted to ask you, and this is another thought, maybe it's not my own, uh, good and bad, right and wrong, evil or good. Is this inherent to our nature? Are we born with this or is this something that we learn? I, I would say it, it's clearly a part of nature, what we call evil. Uh, it's happening everywhere. Um, how implausible would it be to say that uh, human beings and even animals don't have inherent evil, this thing we call evil in them? I mean, um, orcas have been observed to play with half-eaten sea lions uh, for a long time, just for fun, throwing them about out of the water and like a racket, like a, um, playing tennis with, uh, with uh, half-dead uh, sea lions. Um, animals can do this. Um, nature is full of it. Um, we are full of it. Just look at our history. The history of human beings have been the history of kindness and evil, both hand in hand. So I think one is hard pressed, very, very hard pressed by an overwhelming amount of empirical evidence uh, uh, to, to say that um, evil is not natural. It's clearly natural. And I think it, um, a less naive culture would recognize evil's right to exist. That's one thing. What we cannot do is give evil free reign 
because we are beyond that. We, we finally, at great cost, developed uh, self-reflection. We can pass value judgments from a point of reflection, which the, the rest of nature can't. We can. I think it would be uh, um, unspeakable irresponsibility to, to not accept the, the, the moral responsibility that comes with this. So we cannot give evil free reign. Most of the times, a lot of the times, evil is dysfunctional. It doesn't serve whatever ultimate telos or ultimate goal uh, nature has. Every now and then it does. And in Indian philosophy, that's plainly recognized. Uh, uh, Shiva, the god of destruction, every now and then goes and does his dance of fire that destroys everything so we can escape some local minimum and, and progress because you know sometimes you can get stuck in a place where whatever you go, things get worse before they get better. But if you would only keep going, they would eventually get a lot better, but we don't do that because we seek comfort, we seek safety. So every now and then there has to be a Shiva around dancing his dance of fire, which we would identify as pure evil, just to reset the system so we can progress instead of getting stuck. But most of the times, evil is just plain destructive. And I think it's our responsibility to know that. But we have to do it from a place where we recognize evil's legitimate existence as a um, natural part of nature. Yes. I'm trying to use this no, word No, you're repeatedly. explaining it very well uh, in uh, simple terms for you. Thank you. <laughs> It's much better than to close one's eyes and say it doesn't exist, or worse, to say it doesn't have a right to exist. Because the moment you do that, that's the moment you give evil the energy it needs to come and bite you in the butt. Interesting. On a personal level, we've talked about thoughts that are not your own. Do you ever stop thinking about all these major universal truths and questions? For a very long time in my life, I couldn't. I was, um, and that's that was the inspiration for my first answer to you, which is, uh, do I choose my thoughts? Do I choose my emotions? <laughs> I would have never, I would have never chosen to do philosophy with with the intensity I have done for over ten years. I just didn't have a choice. Uh, it, it it wasn't me, <laughs> Bernardo Castro. Bernardo Castro is a kid. He loves to build computers. He happens to have a PhD in computer engineering. And um, I love to sit back there in my workbench, which you can vaguely see, uh, and build my own computers. Um, so when I'm doing that, I stop thinking about these great questions. And I have been able to do that again only this year. Uh, my diamond has sort of let go of me, gave me a little, you know, little room for maneuver uh, to dedicate to my own self-interests. Only this year, after over 10 years of... Um, continuous uh, subservience <laughs> suffering so, and thinking yeah it's not it's not easy to do philosophy uh, history has has shown that uh, philosophy can kill you it has killed uh, more than one philosopher um, but i i'm doing a lot better now um <laughs> reveling a few hours a day i don't do philosophy <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. So in some way, you found a, a management process for your own thoughts. Or you're not, not yeah. your own thoughts, for the thoughts that come into, into Bernardo. Yes, but it, um, it was the reverse of what you would expect. Um, this partial little freedom I now have uh, has only come after, at some point last year, I completely surrendered to, to this um, 
force that uh, dominates me and which you know basically is the engine of my philosophy um i basically said to it like okay uh, this is my lot in life fine my freedom will be in my will- willingness to allow you to play whatever role you want to play through me so it was only in that letting go okay i, I don't I love fight that surrendering process the moment I didn't fight it anymore, and then a few other things happened in my life. One of them, not pleasant at all, on the contrary, um, that culminated in, in, in a transformation earlier this year, in which, hey, I now have a, an hour or two a day to be me <laughs> and to pursue the things I like, um, not because of meaning, but because they're fun, because they give me pleasure. And it's the great relief. It's like I, I swam up to the surface and took a breath of air after hours, hours, years uh, submerged. Um, You're look, flowing not, like nature, a little bit more flowing like nature. Yeah. And, and I'm not complaining about uh, having been basically a slave to philosophy for, for well over a decade that imbues my life with meaning. I don't struggle anymore with what so many people struggle, which is... Uh, is, is my life meaningful? The, the question doesn't occur to me anymore because, uh, you know, the diamond, you know, he hits you, he pushes you, he kicks you, but he also hangs a little carrot of meaning in front of you saying, you will have plenty of it. So I, I have my feel of that enough to last the rest of my lifetime. Um, but um, that I can now, in addition to not regretting those 10 years and being happy about those 10 years that I can now also take care of Bernardo the kid <laughs> for an hour or two a day. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's a great year for me, 2020, although it's a very hard year for, for most of the world. I just want to touch on that what, about being joyful and childlike. How important is that to our personalities, our self, our mind? For me right now, it's very important um, in terms of my well-being. I think, uh, you know, we tend to associate childhood with uh, naivety. Um, But there is something else that was happening in childhood, which was very valuable, which is um, we were much more connected to the roots of of our being as opposed to lost in conceptual thinking. Um, when you're a child, you're rooted very deeply in nature and you're still listening to what happens uh, in the roots, what uh, the commerce that is taking place through the roots, because that's all you have. And then we grow up and we get all this conceptual baggage, which obfuscates our foundational you know, primordial senses, our primordial channels uh, through which we are rooted in nature. They become obfuscated and we live the life of narratives in our heads. So I think for our well-being, it's important to remain connected with the roots you know what you lo- what what did you really like when you were a child what 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 was really fun for you what did you consider important um, forget the narratives of is it good to the world am i being a good person no 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 forget all that just the feeling what made you feel good i think it is very healthy um, to reconnect with that and i'm very glad that i'm finally able to reconnect with that having said that Louisa, I don't reject the, the, the decade plus I have behind me in which I was just not able to do that. Uh, philosophy consumed me sometimes 20 hours a day. Wow. Literally sleep. 
three, three and a half hours. As in, when I was in, in the throes of uh, organizing a new book inside my head, I mean, by the time I start writing a book, the book's done. But in the throes of organizing, composing a book inside my head, I could go for weeks with very little, little sleep or falling asleep at midnight and waking up at 2.30 in the morning with a thought and coming back here up to the office because I needed to let that thought go out. It, 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 it was like glowing hot metal inside me. It, it, it has to pass through. You cannot hold it inside. So I, I don't reject that. It, it, there is a sense in which it was horrible, but there is another sense in, in which it was massively beautiful because uh, the meaning that comes with it is just overwhelming. Uh, and it gave my life a tremendous sense of meaning to the point that um, after I wrote um, the book you refer to, uh, the idea of the world, when, when that book was done, um, and that happened before a couple of times, I had the thought, if I die tomorrow, it's all right. And that's such a great feeling to have. Um, yeah. it, it, it's a release. So I don't reject any of that. I'm not trying to badmouth my diamond, <laughs> the Socratic no, 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 diamond no, no. I have. Um, I'm just saying that my well-being now, forget meaning, my well-being, my mental and physical well-being right now is fantastic fantastically enhanced by my recently conquered ability to reconnect with my child self. Yeah. Well, I want to say congratulations. Are there certain processes that the personality needs to go through in life in order to, I, I don't even want to say the word evolve, but to reach a level of wholeness? Well, to use my own life as an example, I would say absolutely yes. And you don't know it when you're going through it. You only know it in hindsight, but there are so many key junctures, junctures in my life, which were seemingly innocent at the time or, or meaningless, <laughs> to use that word again, meaningless at the time, but in hindsight, have proven to be crucial, you know, junctures on the road when something was constellated that enabled everything that happened after that. So looking in hindsight, I would say, yeah, this stuff is happening all the time. We need certain experiences. Um, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today with the freedom I have today. Everything I just told you in the last 10 minutes yes. wouldn't be happening if less than two years ago, something hadn't happened to me that made me seriously contemplate suicide twice. Uh, if that had not happened uh, in my life. Um, I, I have a medical condition that is incurable and it will never kill me, but it makes life just an intolerable nightmare sometimes. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah. If that hadn't, it's much better now, by the way. <laughs> Although doctors say it's never going to get better, uh, it does. Um, but that served a tremendous purpose that I can only see now. Um, if I hadn't been weakened to the point that I was weakened, to the point when you're ready to give up on everything uh, at that time, I wouldn't have made a key transition that I have made a couple of months ago, um, and which will be public uh, early next year. But uh, I've parted with a career of 24 years uh, to do something completely else uh, in my life that um, I wouldn't have done unless my defenses had been just exterminated, yeah. <laughs> not shaken, and just crumbled, completely decimated by uh, a force that uh, there's no words to describe. A tsunami. Uh, yeah, yeah. A cyclone. Yeah. So at the time, I had a tremendous grudge against it, as you can imagine. 
something that makes you want to check out. And you, you will hold a tremendous grudge about it. Right now, I'm thankful to it because if it hadn't happened, everything else that came as a consequence of my being so weakened wouldn't have happened. So I would say, yeah, you know, don't pass judgment too quickly on what happens to you. Either way, never say, oh, this is great or, oh, this is a piece of crap. You don't know. Wait and see. Uh, only hindsight uh, will tell you. And that hindsight may, may come in two years, like in my case this time, <laughs> only this time, or it may come a lifetime later. Maybe in your deathbed, but it will come. Well, thank you for sharing pieces of your personal story um, so honestly. Um, you have touched on it, but for those that are listening that may be suffering or want to manage their thoughts or thoughts of wherever they're coming from what are your tool do you mind just detailing the tools of potential potentially managing the thoughts or we always want that you know we always yeah. want a love of controls and tools some things we can do <laughs> uh, i don't know whether you could call it a tool but uh, what i would tell is don't take yourself too seriously don't take your personal narrative too seriously you are your personal self is a tiny little cog in an unfathomably complex system that is doing what it's doing partly partly through you um, in a way that you cannot begin to imagine, begin to contemplate. Uh, you, you are intrinsic to it because you too are a being of nature and whatever nature is doing, it's doing it through you too. Um, but keep this perspective. Don't take yourself too seriously. Don't turn your universe into your little personal narrative because that's tremendously claustrophobic and, and that's sulfuric acid to meaning. Um, just, just don't take yourself too seriously. <laughs> Whatever is happening, uh, at, at the highest of highs or the lowest of lows, don't take yourself too seriously. Such a great message for me and everyone else. Um, I've asked all the questions. Is there something you'd like to talk to the audience about, Bernardo? No, it's okay. I think we had a, an intuitive flow and that's the way it, was, it, uh, it, it goes it, best. I don't have an agenda or anything. Okay. No, that, that was wonderful. And I just wanted to say for anyone that's listening or watching, all Bernardo's details will be in the show notes if you'd like to connect with him. Bernardo Castrop, thank you so much for being on Passion Harvest. Thanks for having me, Lucy. It's been Thank fun. you so much. Bye. That is the end of our passionate episode. Thank you so much for listening. And please subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends and spread the passion. As always, every day, may you be more and more passionate. <laughs>